0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. Welcome to New Books Network. And I am Shu Tao, your host, and for this episode. And today I have here with me guest and um, Kenny Shu, author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Democracy. Welcome, Kenny. How are you doing?
0: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Um, can you um, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were born, uh, where you grew up, and, uh, and what's your academic background?
0: So I grew up in Richmond, Virginia and Princeton, New Jersey. Um, I was born in Maryland. Um, I went to public school all my life. Um, and uh, my parents are Chinese immigrants. They came here from China in 1990. Um, and uh, I was a, I'm was a graduate of Davidson College in North Carolina. So I've uh, been pretty much all over the East Coast my whole life.
1: Cool. And uh, maybe we will put a little bit of the, the background that you had put uh, at the end of the book a little bit forward. Um, so in the very end of your book, before your acknowledgments, you talked about in your high school, you met um, – I think he was a childhood buddy of yours, um, and also an Asian American boy, and uh, you had this fierce sense of competition um, against him. Um, could you please go into it and describe that scenario um, for for listeners who who may may not may not have. Being, you know, grown up in an American context, or know the know what the public system uh, school system in America is like.
0: I will. I had a strong sense of uh, competition with my friend Ben, or no, sorry, Henry. Um, basically, we grew up together in the same neighborhood, and I talk about this in my book, um, and you know my parents often compared me to him um and i'm sure and in many ways we were we were very different people you know this this boy also an asian boy like me chinese boy chinese american he was a perfectionist he was perfect at everything he was cute he was the star student um you know, and I was brooding and rebellious. Um, And so we were just different people, but I felt competition anxiety with him because he was always the guy who could out-compete me. And I I was a pretty smart kid, you know, Um, but there was only one thing that I was ever better at him at. And that was writing. I was a better writer than him. um, And was more talented and I was a harder working writer than him. Um, so that was a core experience of mine. Um, I know that that, and and what that shows me, you know, looking back on it in my life, is that you cannot avoid comparisons in this country and or in this world at all. You know, you're always going to be compared to other people. You know, but do you have the fortitude to be able to stand up on your own two feet and to say? hey, I am my own person. You know, I reject common comparisons. I reject common stereotypes about myself. And I am going to go out and pursue my own dream. And I did. I pursued my dream as an author. And my first book, An Inconvenient Minority, was a smashing success. So I never apologize for my success because I know what it takes. You know, every personality is different. Everybody but everybody deserves the right to experience the fruit of his achievement. And whether it's Henry or me, you know, he's a doctor now. Great. Good for him. I really am. But uh, we all have different talents to contribute to this world. And we should be proud of that.
1: Um, it's interesting that you mentioned about excellence and uh, about success. Um, I know that you have studied mathematics and, uh, um, and also English as a major and uh, um, double majors. Um, and uh, did, you, did you know right away that you are going to start um, your, embark your career as an author? How did you, how do you come to, to writing this book?
0: No. Well, look, I always wanted to be an author, but I also knew authors didn't make any money. So (laughs) uh, except very few of them. Um, So I I did not hedge all of my bets on becoming an author. I was a math major in college, did a lot of math related stuff in high school. It wasn't my passion, but I was pretty good at that, too. Um, I think in another life, if I didn't publish this book, I could have been, you know, a decent consultant, (laughs) or a financial analyst, but, uh, but I knew what I always was exceptional at was writing. Um, And furthermore, when this issue came, became hot, this Harvard discrimination against Asians issue um, became hot, I asked around, I asked if anybody was writing on this and nobody was and I realized I'm the only person, I'm a person with an experience with the data credibility I think I could write a book about it, and uh, that book later became an inconvenient minority. So there was an opportunity there that I took. Yeah.
1: Yeah, which is what we're we're going to uh, talk about today. And uh, without that book, we we probably <laughs> we we wouldn't wouldn't be here. And uh, and you your book really laid out a very sobering um, case about discrimination um, in America. Um, could you please explain to listeners who may not be familiar with the Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard case um, what it is about? And uh, um, I have some friends back in Shanghai when they, when I probed into him about the case. He was a Harvard undergraduate. And he said, oh, this is just a statistical problem. Um, so, so help us, listeners who who don't understand the case, and uh, and and who don't know about too much about the statistical analysis. Uh, when does it become statistical significant to make the discrimination case um, valid? Um, and what's the end result of that?
0: All right, sure, I'd love to. So basically, there's a group of Asian Americans who sued Harvard for discriminating for discrimination. And Harvard obviously well-acknowledged has a well-acknowledged race-based admissions program where they, uh, use race as a factor in their admissions process. And this is well-acknowledged. They even say it all the time, but they say they would use race as a factor for the sake of diversity, what they call diversity. Um, now it just so happens that, Even though Asian-Americans are incredibly diverse people, as I told you, this boy Bet Henry and me could not have been more different, uh, except that we share the same skin color. But it seems that the diversity that 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 Harvard specifically wants is racial diversity. And as it also stands in our country, Asian-Americans tend to have the highest academic ability or get a disproportionate rate of the top academic performers in the nation. Asian Americans are about 55% of the top SAT scorers in the nation. Um, and so Harvard's own analysis even said that if Asians were judged solely on the basis of academic merit, um, they would be 43% of the university. But instead, what we see over the past 30 years is Asians hovering between 15 and 20% of the university, which is about a 50% cut. Um, as to where Asians are technically supposed to be if there was merit-based admissions. Harvard says that Asians aren't discriminated against and they point to this thing called a personality score. Uh, the personality score is, is, so Asians tend to get the highest academic ratings. They also get, tend to get the highest extracurricular ratings. Um, but to make up for it, Harvard points to the fact that Asians get the lowest personality score. But then you look at what goes into the personality score, which is like a, a judgment of likability and funny and like gets along well and leadership qualities, basically. And uh, Asians score the highest on the teacher recommendations. They score the second highest on counselor recommendations. I'm assuming their personal essays are great as well. Um, and yet they get the lowest score. Very convenient. Um so, I don't think that we can trust the personality score as a way to weigh down Asians in the admissions process. I think it's part of Harvard's discrimination. and the conclusion that I release in my book is yes, there's clear discrimination against Asians and it's done in the name of diversity
1: and and what's what's the problem with that? Like we know that Asians are overrepresented in selective universities um, that
0: you know, well, except I don't think Asians it. are overrepresented. As I've as I've said as I said um, earlier, talking here, A, if Asians weren't discriminated against at Harvard, they would be forty three percent of the college.
1: Yeah, based on academic. Yes, based on America.
0: academic ability. Right.
1: And that has to do right. with testing and with the SAT, Scholastic aptitude test which was
0: a combination um, of tests and grades yes and course rigor
1: and if we simply if we just focus right now on the SAT test that historically this test was created as a leverage um, of uh, as levering as leveling the playing field that um to increase students from economically less well off background. Um, but as you know, over the years it had shown that it actually ironically has direct correlation with one's economic social background. So so it is less a demonstration of one's um, intelligence if you, if, if you allow me to say that, than of one's um, ability to get um, um, tutors and uh, and get um, uh, test prepped and uh, and and then going to a, a school that that gives them the rigorous environment, as you had said.
0: Do you believe that, Shu?
1: So, <laughs> I think the question of intelligence is a very is a very tricky one, and uh, um. I've seen your interview with Charles Moray. Um I um and, and I'm not sure of if there is an inherent in innate intelligence. And if if that's be that being the case then that means that we're uh, the the meritocracy that we're talking about may not be valid because we're born with the innate ability to study harder and study better. Um, so it, it it may be easier for Asians Asian Americans to to do so.
0: I think that there is some some Asian Americans that I talk to criticize the test because they feel in their lives that their mom and dads push them to study for tests and nobody likes tests i don't like tests i don't want to take another sat for the rest of my life but it doesn't mean that the test is invalid right um the sat and by the way as you know as i as i've told or said already academic the academic rating is not just the sat it's also your grades and it's also the course rigor that you take so But let's just talk about tests because I think that's a controversial issue. Um, The SAT measures two things, okay? It measures, one, your innate intelligence, and two, your hard work, right? Because you do have to study for the test to get the best score, right? But what is studying? Studying is hard work. To study for something, you have to have the discipline to do it, right? You want to study for if you want to get the best grade. Guess what? You have to prepare, and I think that is a that is a reflection of the reality of everything in this country. If you want to get the best job, you have to prepare. If you want to pass your accounting exam, you have to prepare. I think that's it's an important thing, and hard work and preparation should be rewarded. Uh, By the same token, I think innate intelligence should be should it be factored into the college admissions process, wouldn't you think? Especially an elite college, right? Because in an elite college, you're supposed to want the people who can soak up the material, the elite material, the best that they can. And that involves innate intelligence. So I think the SAT measures those two things. And insofar as they measure those two things, I think it does well uh, in terms of a test of meritocracy, a truly meritocratic exam. Um, the other point that you said was that the SAT um privileges rich people. Um and one, the privilege is not as high as you'd expect. Uh in fact, one out of four poor people, um that is fam- people and families with lower than forty thousand dollars in household income, do better on the SAT than um. Fam- than people and families of incomes of one hundred fifty thousand or higher. So that's still pretty good. Um, that's you know that's still pretty good. And I fear that the other things that that the other criteria that that are looked at, I hate to tell you this, but they also favor rich people. <laughs> um, your uh, your extracurriculars, really? Uh, you think uh, poor people can really stack up extracurriculars like rich people can? Um, they can't um, and lastly the fact that rich people tend to score a little higher I would be concerned if I would I would I would be con- severely concerned about the state of our society if it turns out that the people who score highest on the SAT and get rewarded are actually um, the poorest people because if the poorest people, are the ones who are the most intelligent? What well, that would imply is a society of discrimination. That people that there is some factor that is that 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 actually de- suppresses the the more intelligent people of our country. So, um, those are some of the things I'd say about the test. Um,
1: let's go into the topic of meritocracy. Um, in your book, you talk about the fight. For meritocracy, um, I recently read um, a book by Michael Sandel who talk about the tyranny of meritocracy. That those who who are at the top of, of the pyramid, let's say people who are at the um, the successful people at the banking um, at at banking at um, at in politics, that they tend to um they they tend to develop a sense of hubris and uh, and that is a toxic um environment that the people at the bottom they actually feel that they don't deserve um um more and that creates also an environment that is just that is that is not good ground for democracy
0: so i've read michael sandel's the theory of meritocracy as well um my issue with his book is that i think the the trends that he is i think he creates a very easy narrative for example he says that uh wealth or people who are concentrated in those high um, status environments like finance and, and things tend to get more hubris well yeah of course um they could tend to get more hubris but I wouldn't necessarily say that's just unique to people in privileged positions. I think poor people can get a lot of hubris too. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, there's uh, you go to in the in the book "Coming Apart" by Charles Murray, also a book, the book Hill, "Hillbilly Elegy" by J.D. Vance, who talk about the source in in poor white communities in America. Um, people tend to, there's there are people who resent education because they think they're too good for it, or they they don't want to take the test because they think they're too good for it. So I think hubris is not just a problem of the rich. I think hubris is a problem of the poor and the rich.
1: And in your book, when you're talking about the fight for for meritocracy, are you um what? Well, what is the the frame that you are looking at um, are you looking at within the American context or within the global context? And we'll circle back that and you know into the Harvard case again on why it is um, why it has created the, the uh, why it has it, it has really it had in the end won the case and uh, and in the name of diversity
0: Right so I, I believe, and I say this, I think, on page one of my book. Um, meritocracy is, is, is a very specific definition to me, which I think we can all agree on. First, you create equal opportunity so that everybody can compete on fair, in a, on a fair playing field. The word is fair. Um, and then you judge people only by what they achieve, right? Their merits, um, I think that's what a meritocracy is. Um, that means you leave no room to judge people on the basis of race, sex, sexual orientation, um, in, inherent characteristics, legacy status, wealth, or anything like that. You judge people based on solely based on um, their merits and their skills that are particularly suited to whatever you're trying to recruit them to think that that is what meritocracy is to me i think that's a, a very fair and just system i don't believe in equality of outcome i think equality of outcome has a terrible historical record most particularly in china and the soviet union in south africa and cuba and the list goes on um i believe that some people will when you enforce equality of outcome, you disincentivize the people who are more skilled producers from continuing to produce, because then those people will not get rewarded for their production. You know, and when they don't reward it for their production, they tend not to want to produce. Um, furthermore, I think you need an ideal that allows people from all backgrounds to want to achieve. Um, to desire achievement. So you have to reward people for the fruits of their efforts. I strongly believe in that. Um, So that's my definition of meritocracy. Now, as far as how far America is towards meritocracy or whether, you know, how far it is, how far it needs to go. um, Look, there's a a study in AEI, um, 98% of people who do three things in this order will not be in poverty. And that is um, graduate from high school, uh, have a full-time job, and get married before having children. 98% of people who do those three things are not in poverty in this country. I think that's pretty good. And I think those things need to be taught to everybody. I think that statistics need to be taught to everybody because it shows, and by the way, that's 95% of Black people, 97% of Hispanic people, I think that's something that all races, all cultures can achieve. Um, And I think that that's that's a pretty good way of of a pretty good starting point in terms of society and societal fitness.
1: What about the the topic of one of your chapters on diversity and inclusion? Um, Do you consider diversity as a... um, As as a goal that is worth achieving uh, for a society that we historically, um, uh, that historical injustices um, need need to be in some way um, um, looked at, looking at the legacy of slavery.
0: Yeah. Okay. So two things. Um, One is an address to your first question, which I think is different from the second. The first question is diversity, is diversity a goal in society? Um, I think diversity under certain conditions is good. I don't think diversity for the sake of diversity is always good. Look, in America, I think diversity has largely been a good thing, Um, but it is not the end to which we should aspire to. The reason why we have incredible diversity is because we have so many people who want to come into this country, make this country and, uh, and it's because they see the freedom and they see the opportunity that they see in this country that they want to come, that they're attracted to it, and therefore they make our country more diverse. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, but I don't think you should force it. And I don't think it's the only thing. Um, the second question that you asked is uh, about what we should do about our history. And I think that's a complex question. Um, what I've learned is that affirmative action tends not to work. Do we need to do something to rectify, I guess, the legacy of slavery um, and racism? Even if you said yes, um, I would say we've tried a lot of things. We tried having we we have a big welfare state in our country. We have Medicaid. 47% of welfare recipients are black, so it is basically a re- re- reparative process. That's what it is. Uh, Medicaid, same thing, and it hasn't really given us the results that we want to. We spent three times as much money in public education since 1980, adjusted for inflation. It hasn't really given us the results we've wanted to. So I am skeptical of these so called reparative efforts or reparations efforts. Um, without necessarily being opposed to the idea. But I think if you really want to boost human capital of, of poor minority groups, I think you need to focus on building human capital, uh, focus on cultivating the skills, cultivating the culture of excellence, incentivizing the right things.
1: Great. Um, let's now talk about Asian-American Um what is this, what is the popular, what, what is the history of, um, of Asian Americans? And, uh, you have in your book, you have interviewed maybe hundreds, uh, of Asian Americans, um, and some are new newcomers and others are, um, others coming, um, coming, may have been here for generations. Um, can you paint us a picture of that? And, uh, um, and why also I have a, a question about, is this mm-hmm. also a political concept, not just a racial concept that some, um, some Indian Americans, let's say who feel uncomfortable with the word Asian American and would rather say, I'm, I'm an American.
0: Um, it most definitely is a political concept Asian, the term Asian American was invented by a Marxist group in Berkeley in 1960. I'm not kidding about that. That's true. You can look it up. They coined the term Asian American because they felt like they needed some way to, to uh, have people who looked like them have political power in this country. And they knew the power of the identity politics in America. So they coined the term Asian American so they could burst their way into political power. So it's most definitely a political concept, meaning since it is a political concept, it means it doesn't tie into anything inherently about these groups. Like, like it's not that Asian Americans are inherently smarter or, you know, or have any characteristic. So when I use the term Asian American, I am well aware that I'm generalizing to some extent. Um, But I use the term because it's so politically conscious right now. What am I, what else am I going to say? Like um, Americans who came from these countries who generally belong to the immigrant experience, blah, blah, blah. Um, No, I'm not going to say that. So I'm going to, but let me, um, let me explain what Asian Americans, Asian Americans in general as a as as a as a group, have generally done. Um, generally, they highly prioritize education. Asian Americans study twice as many hours as the average American. Asian Americans study thirteen hours a week. The average white American studies about eight. The average Black American studies about five. Um, Asian Americans tend to be new immigrants who come from 1960 and they tend to come with almost no wealth. That is starting to change, but not to the point where it's really impacted my analysis of this group. Most Asian Americans came with no wealth. And furthermore, most Asian Americans came with no social connections, meaning that they basically started from zero and through the values of education to parent-family structures, have not only survived in this country, but have thrived. Vietnamese Americans, 80% of them come here and they don't even speak English, yet their sons and daughters graduate from college at a higher rate than white Americans. That's also a true fact right there. So Asian Americans show that America is a country where there is a lot of opportunity, I think. Go ahead.
1: Oh, uh, that certainly makes I think your your book the title incredibly um um poignant and inconvenient minority usually Asian Americans associated with um the the model minority stereotype and uh, and and this um yeah yeah please go ahead
0: right and um look I I never you know I don't I didn't write this book to impugn anybody, either my fellow Asian Americans or Americans of other races or white liberals or black liberals or anybody or conservatives. You know, I use this, I wrote this book because I love Asian Americans, and it took me a long time for me to really embrace that, you know, as you probably gathered for a while I experienced much racial anxiety about myself. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to assimilate into this country and be like everybody else. But then I realized how amazing our story is and how it must be told. And how through the hard work of my parents, through my hard work, through study habits, good discipline, everything like that, we've been able to create a success story and a story that deserves to be championed. I wrote this as a love letter to Asian Americans, to my Asian American community who face self-hate because elites, the elites don't seem to love them. The elites seem to spurn them and not want too many of them in their colleges. The elites don't like the fact that because of their cultural habits, they are able to succeed in this country because it puts the elite narratives in very inconvenient positions. So they suppress it. They don't want us to tell our stories. And I refuse to bow down to that narrative. I think that we should tell our stories and I don't think that we should hate ourselves. I don't think that we should hate the structures of society that made us who we are. I think we are great and we have a lot to contribute.
1: I totally second that. Um, going back into the history, that Chinese Exclusion Act is the first act that targets a racial minority group. Um, and uh, and I I look at the our forerunners that came to to California and to work in the in the coolie industry. And and then in your book, um, you talk about the the large number of Asian Americans and Asians who work at companies like Google and Facebook, and yet they're not able to rise up in the ranks, um, and uh, and even in the diversity profiles, profilings um, you may call them, that they're excluded um, once again from uh, from those. Um, success stories, um, if we may call them. Can you speak more about that? Why is that in spite of the hard work um, that we can't do that? And I'm I'm thinking uh, not just about the lack of cultural capital that you have spent great amount um, amount of time uh, delineating that in your book. I'm also thinking about the lack of moral capital.
0: It's a good, that's really interesting. You mentioned moral capital. It's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that. Um, but I know inherently what you mean. Um, so we don't, yeah, you're right. I, I don't think we have as much moral capital necessarily. Um, but I also don't, I you know, my, my analysis of the issues historically um, in our country, we've expended a lot of moral capital on the welfare state, on... Um, affirmative action on various programs to help who we perceive as the underprivileged, largely black and Latino Americans. And that hasn't really given us the results that we wanted. So I'm not necessarily sure how much of a bad thing it is that we don't have this moral capital. Um, but one thing's for sure. Um, in my book, I talk about the diversity and inclusion industry and how exclusive it is of Asian Americans. Um, Google loves to tout It's multicolored faces, but it does not love to tout the fact that 90% of its software engineers are Asians, right? Literally, the people that make Google function and work are largely Asian and Asian American. And that's not because Google preferentially hires Asians. It's because those are the only people out there with the skills that Google really requires and needs to do something like that. And they don't celebrate that they don't celebrate that um because that doesn't that doesn't make them seem like the nice multicolored company that they feel like they want to they want to look like in the eyes of the culture and so they they rely on this diversity and inclusion narrative that really does not celebrate asian success and you know i this this graph that i put in my book that shows how asians are 50% of the engineers, tech people in Silicon Valley, but only 20% of the managers and 15% of the executives, Um, you know, that I think that that shows that that is not a graph that's often highlighted when we're talking about Silicon Valley, um, because Asians are just not the minority that is currently being focused on by today's um, DEI efforts.
1: What, is there something that you propose to change this um, this corporate structure in such a way that meritocracy does get celebrated?
0: Um, yes and no. Um, I think DEI is a severe threat to meritocracy right now. The, re- the reason why is because DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, explicitly uses race in promotion and hiring and not Asians. They don't want Asians. No, they, they want more Black Americans, more Hispanic Americans, um, more women. So I think that's anti-meritocratic. Um, I think that you should ha- when you hire, you shouldn't have race or gender included at all in the way that you hire. Um, In terms of changing the corporate structure of Google, um, I'm not necessarily supportive of the idea that I just want more Asians in executive positions like prima facie. That, I think that if Asians, the reason why is because corporations are conservative instruments, meaning they like, once a corporation is made, they wanna preserve the corporation. The goal is to preserve the existing structure. Too much change and the structure collapses. So the function of a corporation is sort of to preserve itself. I think if Asians really want to reap the rewards of what they deserve, they need to start their own corporations. You know, they need to get the leadership skills, get the financing, go out there, start their own, be entrepreneurial and uh, push into the culture in that way. And that's what I talk about in my book. Um just like what Black Americans did with rap music, by the way, and made rap music such a phenomenon that has made many, many Black multi-millionaires in our country because of the strength of rap music, because that was a genuine entrepreneurial phenomenon that came from Black America. I think Asian Americans need to find avenues where they can push um, entrepreneurially as well.
1: Yeah, I remember in the story you talked about um, woman who who started a um, a private equity fund when she was at MIT. Um, can you share a little bit about her story? Because I found the way that when she start, when her company started growing, um, that her choice of um, of selecting the um, the the top the top dogs for the company to grow is very interesting.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it sort of runs a little bit counter to the whole idea about diversity. Um, This woman, her name was Christina Chi, um, who I know. She runs this fund called Dome Yard. Actually, now she runs Data Bento. She uh, used to run Dome Yard. Um, Basically, in the early stages of capital raising, she thought that the best strategy was to hire an old white guy to be the um, leading strategist. Um, for the sake of what she thought is diversity, right? Because she's a young Asian female and her two engineers were young Asian males. So she said, maybe I want diversity of age. So I'm going to hire an old white guy and you know he has experience and blah, blah, blah. But that guy eventually started giving advice that did not comport with the culture of the company. So she had to let him go. And that turned out to be a failure as a hire. Um, now, so... Diversity, for the sake of diversity, is not necessary. It's not. It's not useful. It's not useful to think in that direction. When you th- when you when you hire in a company, you have to think of like who is the best person for the kind of culture and the kind of product that you want to create. Um. So, but but the point is, that was just her and um. And her two Asian software engineers. And they went on. They created a well-regarded fintech firm, and they were able to, you know, make an impact and make generate a lot of wealth. Um, and uh, I think that shows also the opportunities and possibilities that are available to Asian Americans who work together.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, before we close off, um, moving on to the last question, I I wanted. To- to just talk a little bit about the the cultural wars that are that are going on. Um, what um, what are some of the examples of cultural wars uh, of Asian Americans against other groups that you see um, from the book that you wanted to highlight?
0: Well, I think there's. I think there's a, there's going to be an oncoming reckoning between white liberals and it, particularly elite white liberals and Asian Americans, because elite white liberals want to structure society such that they feel good about themselves, meaning they want this version of diversity that, as I've argued already, is pretty heavily anti-Asian. Um, And so what I talk about in my book is that when when meritocracy collapses, Asians lose. I'm 100% serious. Asians are the first to lose. Why? Because Asians in this country don't have generational wealth or privilege or social connections to back them up in the case of meritocracy declining. They're completely reliant upon their skills and talents to move up in society. So when skills and talents are undervalued, Asians lose. Very simple syllogism right there. I think there will be an oncoming clash between, and there already is, between the the, the, the attack on meritocracy and the future of Asian Americans. And that's why I think Asian Americans need to stand up. They need to stand up for their own rights, because when they stand up for their own rights, they're standing up for more than their own rights. They're standing up for the American dream, in a sense, because the American dream is you can come from any country and you can come here and we're not going to look at your background. We're just going to treat you on the basis of what you can contribute. I think that's the American dream. And I think that's that's an ideal that is worth preserving. And I think Asian Americans can take the lead in preserving it.
1: So just one note I wanted to mention that um, that there is perhaps a sense of Craving for comfort and really being good at stability uh, amongst the the Asian Americans. Um, do you see that as inequality starts growing, and I don't expect that it will stop growing um, any any sooner. Um, that this you know, maybe the, the cultural sensibilities of Asians toward stability may hinder us um, and may contribute to the collapse of the American dream. If it, you know, let's, let's hope that it doesn't come to that. Um, I would love to hear your thought on that.
0: I think it, um, yeah, I, I think, I, I think, if Asian American, I think we have a choice, right? I don't believe in uh, political determinism. Okay. Um, what that means is I don't believe that ultimately structures and conflicts are, are preset. Um, I think Amer- Asian Americans can learn how to speak out. And many already have, as I chronicled in the last chapter of my book, many have started standing up against Harvard and because they know what this lawsuit means for the future of this country. So Asian Americans have a choice, just like every American has a choice. What are they going to stand up for? Are they going to stand up? Are they going to be too comfortable to with their suburban house, their suburban picket fence, their, their, their belief in their own hard work? Um, are they gonna be so comfortable and ignorant and naive that they won't stand up for their sons and their daughters' futures? Or are they actually going to take action and speak out? I've I've met more first-time Asian American political activists than I've ever had in my entire life over the past two years. And I can tell you, these people are as fired up as any American about our country, and they're gonna make as much impact if not more so i'm optimistic i do believe asian americans can get find their voice as long as they stay true to themselves their values and who they are but they have a choice
1: thank you for for ending on such an optimistic note Um, and before we close off i wanted to ask you um is there another book project that you're working on Uh, what can we um expect from you um in the coming
0: in the coming year <laughs> there, there is shoe there is um and I can't say too much about the details right now but I am going to shine a larger light and a larger focus I think on exactly what is happening that is causing this wide racial achievement gap that we're seeing in our country today and I'm going to share some pretty hard truths in this book truths that are not easy truths to swallow but need to be said because it's the only way we're going to solve our problems. Um, and I'm going to talk about how today's current solutions, like uh, equity—one word is equity—that's very, very popular right now—are actually going to harm minority kids' futures more than they're going to help. Um, so that's my next book.
1: Great, we're really looking forward to that. Uh, thank you so much, Kenny.
0: Yep, thank you.